Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 20th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and in celebrating, what, what is it, Katrina? Is it Invasive Species Awareness Week? It is. That's it. It's an Invasive Species Awareness Week, so I got a lot of pride to be talking to you guys about the lionfishes that we got here. Seems like it's always a good time to raise awareness about invasive species. And to help us do that today, we're very lucky to have two guests coming at this fish from different angles. Holden Harris is joining from the University of Miami and NOAA's Southeast Fisheries Science Center. And we've got Rachel Bowman, who fishes for lionfish commercially. So super cool. Very happy you both are here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So to get our listeners on the same starting point, we like to get a feel for what our fish of the week looks like. And Rachel, I'll pitch this one to you first. Say you're diving off the Florida Keys, wherever these fish have invaded. You come across a lionfish. How would you describe it to someone who hasn't seen this fish before? When you see a fish that looks like it just left a drag show and it's on its way to a Mardi Gras parade, that's a lionfish. <laughs> yeah, what Rachel's <laughs> describing is that they're quite flamboyant and beautiful. So they grow about up to like 35 centimeters or about up to 18 inches. So they're relatively small, not as big as other fish, but they have these striking vertical bright red stripes and these big spines and these big pectoral fins, which are actually venomous. And that's what makes them both beautiful and also dangerous. And are they called lionfish because of that look and kind of it looks like a mane or is it more behavioral? I think it's because of that mane. I think that's why. They're also nicknamed a turkey fish. So if you can kind of imagine that in your head, you know, the spread out feathers of a turkey. Okay. Yeah, I see that. The first time I ever saw a lionfish, well, the first time I saw one was in The Naked Gun with Leslie Nielsen, but that was a movie. (laughs) The first time I saw one in the wild was I was down with a friend out in Key Largo in 2010 And we caught some small ones with a cast net. And we started seeing these signs all around the place saying it's an invasive species kill on site type thing. When did this species first become established in Florida? And when did it reach the numbers that you could support commercial fisheries by them? The first documented observation of lionfish was off Dania Beach in South Florida in 1985. Hmm. And then there's about 15 years where you see a couple of sightings of lionfish. Nothing really happens. And then in the early 2000s, we start to get lots of sightings of lionfish in Florida and the following that Gulf current. So you start seeing sightings going up north to Georgia, to North Carolina, and then out to Bermuda. And in 2006, 2007, you start seeing early sightings in the Caribbean. In the Keys, they, I believe the first sighting was in 2009. So that's kind of the first lionfish. In 2010 and 11, they come into the Gulf of Mexico. And they've continued to spread throughout the Caribbean and then actually down into South America and now are spreading south into Brazil. So at first they were like, if you see a lionfish, tell someone. And then really quickly they were like, this is now a problem. If you see a lionfish, remove it. Commercial fishing started, I think, in the early 2010s for lionfish. And the keys, first one was in 2009. And then within several years, there's now enough lionfish that people are starting to harvest them in mass. Okay. And is this all one species, like the common lionfish, or are there multiple species, and where are they from originally? So it's a hybrid of two species, Pterospholitans and 
terrace miles, and they're pretty much indistinguishable. They're mm -hmm. mostly volatiles here. There's actually a separate invasion of lionfish that's going on in the Mediterranean, and they're actually continuing to spread there, and those are only the miles. Lionfish are native to the Indo-Pacific area, the much older, more biodiverse reef. So we in the Caribbean, we have about 70 species of corals, for instance, and two species mm -hmm. of crop oak corals. In the Indo-Pacific, there's three to five times as many coral species. It's an old reef and there's a lot higher biodiversity. So it's kind of like Superman. This lionfish evolved in a whole different reef and then they've come over to the Western Atlantic and they're doing really well because they've evolved in that different system. What is it particularly about the systems that allow the lionfish to just kind of pop off here? Because you think, you know, okay, different predators, different prey, stuff like that. But we still got things that could eat a fish like this here, presumably. So so what's keeping that? Well, you know, I think it's kind of a combination of a bunch of different things. One, lionfish are protected by those venomous spines. So it doesn't seem like things really like to eat them too much. There are some things that we think are eating them, occasionally groupers, occasionally sharks, but we don't really think that's happening enough. And it's not just predators. They're also escape the parasites and diseases from their native area. So they're not controlled by that. And also what eats their larvae. So they produce these millions of eggs. Most of those don't reach adulthood, but we think there's a lot of controls in their native system that they don't have here. And then they have different foraging and hunting techniques here, which is kind of interesting. So those big, beautiful pectoral fins that we described, what they do is they actually use those to corner fish into corners and then they'll shoot jets of water, which will disrupt the lateral line system of the prey fish. And then linefish strike really rapidly and quickly, similar to groupers, but mm. they can actually strike at different angles than the native fish here can. Their swim bladder allows them to be completely upside down. So when you're oh, hunting whoa. for lionfish, they're actually completely upside down, which you don't see fish have. So the combination of these novel hunting techniques that the native prey here are naive to allows them to be really successful. So there's the early studies of lionfish hunting where they observed lionfish eating as many as 30 prey fish species in a 30 minute period. And they're actually, they actually found like fat deposits of lionfish. They're actually getting overweight because they're able to eat so much. Do they have any kind of preferred prey that they really go after that are kind of hurting after this invasion? They like small things that can fit in their mouth. When they're younger, they eat a lot of shrimp and crabs and invertebrates. When they get bigger, they eat more fish. One of the things about lionfish that we've seen is lionfish in different areas kind of seem to eat what is the most abundant. And in the northern areas where there's seasonal changes in fish composition, when you get more small fish in an area, the lionfish will switch to that. So they're able to eat a lot of things. So whatever's kind of available and will fit in their mouth, they'll gobble them up. Rachel, did you go down to Florida specifically to hunt lionfish or were you down there and that just became an opportunity that you took advantage of? And what was it like when you just first kind of took on this experience? I grew up on a commercial shrimp boat in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, and we don't have pretty fish there. Our fish are mm -hmm. kind of, you know, gray and brown and not very exotic looking. And lionfish are the exact opposite of boring I moved to the Florida Keys in 2001, and I met a man named Adolphus Bush IV. He hired me as his boat captain. So mm -hmm. I would captain his boat 
while he would go scuba dive. So I'm watching this guy get out of the water with these really cool fish. And I thought, hey, maybe I could be down there too. So I started diving with him and we were giving these crazy looking fish to a local restaurant here and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, who regulates all of the commercial fishing in the state of Florida, contacted me and they said, "Miss Bowman, we think what you're doing is amazing and it's also illegal. You can't give fish <laughs> to a restaurant and allow them to then sell it. You have to be regulated. There has to be paperwork. And as someone who grew up on a shrimp boat, I just felt like such an idiot. How did this not occur to me? And the FWC was amazing. They got me licensed and on the right track. And this commercial fishery really took off a few years later in May of 2016. And Whole Foods said, we want to start selling lionfish in our stores. And that was really incredible because... You know, not many people understand the difference between venomous and poisonous. And a struggle with the commercialization of lionfish as a food source has really been getting people past that fear of eating something that's venomous. And if Whole Foods sells it, it must be good, Mm -hmm. right? Do you want to clarify for people just venom versus poison? So a venom is an injection. And so if you're injected by something, that's a venom. And so the spines of lionfish are venomous. Poison is when you ingest something. And so like eating a poisonous chemical, the meat of lionfish is totally fine. You can fillet it like any other fish. You can also eat it whole. You can put the whole thing in the oven and that venom will denature it. And they sell beautiful whole roasted or whole fried lionfish. Oh, cool. And, and you just eat it like any other fish. What about on the wholesale side, on the restaurant side, if you have someone who's like, hey, we want to start, you know, selling lionfish, do they have to get any special permits in order to be able to buy and sell fish? Oh, yeah. The seafood trade is, as it should be, very much regulated. If you want to go to a restaurant and eat something and you go home and you get ill, someone needs to know. So did you eat a bad oyster? Where did it come from? Is there a contaminant in that region? Is this restaurant not storing these oysters properly? These are all, you know, obvious reasons why seafood needs to be tracked the way that it is. A distributor would buy the fish from me. They have a license to buy fish from me. I have a license to sell fish to them. All that's tracked with paperwork. They then have a license to sell to Whole Foods. Whole Foods has a license to buy from them. So there's a 100% paper trail. Perfect. Thank you. So how do you catch them? Are you guys spearing these fish? And how do you deal with them once you, like, without getting injured by them? So we use a pole spear. That's the easiest method. When we spear the fish, we put them into containment devices that are called zookeepers. And that allows us to have the fish in the water with us. And it also allows us to hand them off to someone on the surface on the boat. I can't speak for anyone else, but... I have been stung a lot, and if I get stung, it's one of three things. I'm in a hurry, I'm not paying attention, or I'm trying to impress someone. So it's very easy to harvest lionfish and not get stung. All fish have spines. If you're cleaning you know, a grouper or a snapper, you're probably not getting stuck in the hand as you're cleaning that fish. So you would take the same care when cleaning and handling lionfish. Their spines are actually longer. 
I find it makes it a little easier to clean, whereas grouper and snapper have shorter, stubbier spines that are not as visible and apparent. And what does it feel like when you get stung? Is that like a bee sting feeling? Or is this it... is the part where I can't cuss, right? You can yeah. do two versions, I guess. I'd love to hear it. but <laughs> yeah, All the profanity, all the words, that's what would come out of your mouth. So there's a difference between a prick and a sting. Prick, maybe you just got kind of tapped, didn't get completely envenomated. Sting is the spine went in to you and all the venom came through it. I forget which one of the Harry Potter books it is when <laughs> something happens and I think Nurse Pomfrey makes him drink something called Skelligro to make him regrow the bones in his arms. That's what it feels like. It feels like <laughs> your bones and joints are expanding from Ooh. the inside out. Ooh. I don't understand the biology of it, but whatever part gets stung is going to fill with fluid and swell up absolutely immediately. I've cut you know, rings off my fingers. I've cut bracelet off my arms before I got smart enough to figure out, you know, probably shouldn't have this on when I'm diving. It is super unbearable. It is a protein-based neurotoxin in the venom. So your best method of treatment is, I'll just say, hottest water you can find. If you can submerge the area of the sting in that water, if it happens during a dive, you know, you've got to end the dive, get safely back on the boat, and then get that warm water. You've got a time window there. I usually don't make that time window. Mm. There's not really a lot else you can do. Now, lionfish that have been frozen for a while, that protein venom does denature. And so if you're handling lionfish that have been dead for a day or two and you get stung, then it might be more like a bee sting. It's also variable from person to person. See people, a, it can be not too bad. There's been plenty of hospitalizations from it. To our knowledge, no one has died from a lionfish sting. The most dangerous part is because, you know, you're underwater, it's very labor intensive. Oftentimes you have to go pretty deep to get high numbers of lionfish. The most dangerous part is you can't surface immediately. So if you're on a long, deeper dive, you still have to follow your computer and dive table and can't panic. And so that can be the most dangerous part of it. I've seen some videos of people online talking about those spearing stuff that you're getting at, Rachel. And it's almost more like gathering than it is hunting, it looks like. And it's like you're on the side of the road picking up cans with those things because they're not really swimming away from you and there's just such high abundance. But you're saying that you have to go pretty deep to get them. So why why is that? Well, down here, it's funny that you say that because that's always how I describe it. Is I'm picking up garbage on the side of the road. I'm just doing <laughs> underwater. Yeah, the lionfish don't recognize us as predators. I've speared a lionfish and missed and just speared them again. I mean, they're not, they don't view us as any type of threat. We tend to find more fish in deeper habitat here because we have a lot of, you know, recreational divers here. Our recreational shops are going to keep those shallower areas thinned out. We're not sure why that we see higher densities of lionfish deeper. We know there is. Uh, shallow is basically you know, a meter of water that small lionfish will be in mangroves and in seagrasses, but they're very few and far between. And you start seeing some on the deeper, on the coral reefs, start seeing more lionfish. To get enough lionfish for like Rachel goes to be commercial, you really have to go past 100 feet and usually deeper. It's, well, what, what depths do you usually dive at, Rachel? Try and keep it, you know, below shallower than 160, 170. I don't like to go a lot further than that. And I certainly wouldn't recommend it for anyone else. What's a good day of lionfish hunting look like? Spin the wheel, sister. 
<laughs> like you're talking like tens, hundreds, like there's no rhyme or reason. There's so many variables. It's going to depend on where I'm diving. How long has it been since I've been there? Have other divers been there? What's my visibility light? What's my current light? Those are all things that, that get factored in. I can have great days. I'd like to say that there's no such thing as a bad day line fishing. If I don't find a lot of fish, then that's great because that means that there aren't a lot of lion fish in that area. That's great for the world. It's not great for my bank account, but you know. How much does each one weigh roughly? They're not too big. And uh -huh. I, you know, I think Rachel brings up a whole bunch of the challenges for commercial fishing these. And probably the biggest one is the size. And the average lionfish is probably a half a pound to a okay. pound. The fillet yield on that is probably going to be about 25% or 30%. So you have to shoot a lot of lionfish to get yeah. 100 pounds of bait. And how long can you guys stay down on a dive that's, you know, kind of pushing it to this limit? Everyone's air consumption is different. That's going to be determined by the size of the tank on your back, the mix of air. Are you diving just air? Are you diving nitrox? How many dives have you done that day leading up to that? Those are all factors that, that go into how long. The goal of any dive is to be able to do this again. Yeah. It's only minutes that you have down there. And so, you know, it depends on the depth, but uh, some of the deeper dives that Rachel's mentioned, you might have eight minutes of bottom time. Um, and then you got time coming up. And then it's yeah. going to be a long time coming up. Yeah. And then the difference between being six minutes on the bottom or 10 minutes on the bottom, depending on your dive profile, what you're doing can be actually very dangerous. The margin for error gets to be really small to make money you'd have to work very quickly. And people yeah. like Rachel and the commercial divers are able to do that. The most important thing is that you have to then be aware of even if there's more fish and because you can't necessarily come back down right away, you have to cut yourself off and check yourself before you wreck yourself. You can let those last fried fish stay down there, but protect yourself first. Watch your air, watch your gauges, be safe, end the dive and make more dives in the future. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the tournaments and Rachel, if you've participated in those. The tournaments are awesome. It's a chance to get to see, you know, fellow lionfish people that I really only see once a year at that big mm -hmm. tournament. How many have you won? Uh, quite a few. And actually uh, last year, Holden and I were on a team together. Holden and I actually also do a research trip out into the Gulf of Mexico. Rachel is kind of actually the organizer is Trips called the Lionfish Invitational that go out in the Flower Gardens National Marine Sanctuary bring together this really cool group of commercial fishers and stakeholders of lionfish and then also pairs and scientists that all spend four days on a boat offshore together diving these beautiful reefs, collecting data on benthic cover for corals and other fishes, and then also collecting lionfish and collecting data on the lionfish there. We have a federal permit that allows us to spear in a completely protected area out there, 110 miles offshore. It's very remote. And we get to go out there and harvest and collect data samples and do fish surveys. And it all goes into this database that is 100% accessible by anyone anywhere in the world. Speaking of research, I've read a couple articles, some by some folks over there at NIMPS, looking into trying to create trapping mechanisms that will specifically target lionfish using cameras and stuff and not targeting native species. What do you guys know about those? They build them in my driveway. 
<laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. We honestly do. Dr. Giddings and Holden and build them in my driveway with my boyfriend. <laughs> Drink her rum and build traps and stay up <laughs> till the small hours in the morning, designing small little traps, <laughs> and then go, waking up at the first thing to go out and build them again. Rachel's boyfriend is one of those guys that can like build or fix anything too, and so we sit around with him as we've been thinking about different gear mechanisms for how to catch lionfish. Um, and he's been kind of this pro bono consultant helping us work on those lionfish traps. If you could just help us like paint a picture of what they look like, I think that could be kind of fun. How do I describe it getting flying fish trap? So there's these two semicircular rings, each about six feet long, made of rebar, and they form these jaws with netting in between them. And, <laughs> and when they lay on the floor, they're flat, and the netting lays on the floor, on the benthos, on the bottom of the seafloor, and then there's actually a piece of white lattice piece of garden fencing that sits in the middle and that acts as structure that attracts lionfish to them and then when we retrieve the trap those those rebar jaws close like a bear trap and close and encapsulate the lionfish inside <laughs> we've made some progress and had some setbacks to make a long research journey short they're still in development <laughs> still being tested the motivation for lionfish traps and other innovative harvest gears for lionfish is that divers, especially really good ones like Rachel, are really good at depleting small areas of lionfish. The problem is that, you know, recreational divers can pretty much only dive to about 130 feet, but we know that beyond that, densities of lionfish are really high. As deep as 300 meters or over a thousand feet wow. deep. Dang. And we really don't have any way to harvest them or control them. And so this is an opportunity for a commercial fishery. Someone could potentially make money and we'd like to get lionfish off those reefs to, to mitigate the damages there. There's different ROVs or remotely operated vehicles that have been developed that use like pneumatic spear guns. The group that made the Roomba have been testing a robot that uses electronic paddles to shock lionfish. I'm not sure if this could be economically scalable because this would be really expensive. And lionfish being really small, it's hard to yeah. make money on them, even if you're just scuba diving. What's the prognosis on this invasion? What do you guys think the future is going to hold, say, like 10 years, 100 years from now? I have job security. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, Sounds like it. We know that they're not going to be eradicated. Yeah. And that what we call metapopulation dynamics, uh, there, there's even if you remove all of the lionfish of a certain area, for one, we know that you're actually missing a lot of lionfish. We did some yeah. research on detection and removal efficiency that they're really cryptic and hard to find. So there's probably more there. Theoretically, even if you did, you have sources from other places that are, good, that are going to repopulate those, especially those deep water populations. So lionfish are going to be here to stay. They're not necessarily a black hole in the ocean. They're not going to eat everything in sight. I think they're going to actually develop into kind of a fishery. They're not going to be a managed fishery like sna snapper and grouper because we know that we want lionfish gone. Yeah. But I think we're going to have recreational divers harvesting them. We're going to have tournaments collecting them, which actually has some economic value and people get a lot of fun and utility from those. And then we're going to have some commercial fisheries for them, we'll have divers and potentially trap fisheries or deeper water harvest that will collect these lionfish. 
So I think they're going to be here to stay, and I think they'll probably relatively stabilize into another fish that's just going to be, unfortunately, endemic to our area. But lionfish friends are forever. Yeah, it sounds like there's a really cool community of people around harvesting this fish. One of the most amazing things about Florida is that you have an organization that is tasked with regulating fisheries, the FWC. That is also the organization that has the scientists that go out and get the data on those specific fisheries. It is also the organization that makes sure watercraft out there in the water is operating in the safest way possible. I don't know of any other state that does that, where it's all happening kind of together in the same building. It's not multi-agencies. They're not competing. They're not fighting. It's all under one together, which kind of makes it extra awesome. Yeah, Lionfish have, in some ways, provided this neat opportunity for everyone to kind of be on the same page and work together. The commercial fishers and it's like NOAA and FWC don't always get along that well. They want fish now and fish for the future. Everyone agrees on the same goal, but there can be a lot of contention on sort of making that happen. Lionfish is this opportunity that we all agree that we want them gone and we want a fishery for them. And so fishers and researchers and managers are actually able to work together pretty well. And hopefully that's carried over maybe into some other more contentious fisheries like snapper and grouper. And say I'm just a member of the public. I want to help with this issue. What are some different ways I can do that, whether that's through diving or maybe other ways to do that? Well, in Florida, lionfish is the only species you are allowed to harvest without a fishing license. You are allowed to just get in the water with a pole spear and pop all the lionfish you want. Obviously, coming to Florida and diving is not maybe available to everyone. So I would suggest any seafood restaurant you're in, feel free to ask them if they carry lionfish. If they do, please try it. It is delicious and wonderful. It's white, mild, not a strong fishy flavor, almost a slightly sweet flavor. It's it's compared to hogfish or the more mild snappers. It is very high in the omega-3 fatty acids that are good for you, and it can be cooked anyway. Lionfish can be served as sushi. Lionfish can be baked, grilled, fried, just marinated in lime juice if you want to do a ceviche, but try it and then tell all your friends how delicious it is. One thing that we could look at for lionfish too is that they're kind of iconic of a problem on or coral reefs, but we don't want to get tunnel vision on just lionfish. Lionfish aren't the problem. They're our fault. We brought them here. Yeah, I was going to ask, how'd they get here? It's people that are the problem that move them around from aquarium releases, like a lot of other invasive species. Lionfish are just doing what they've evolved to do, and they just breed and eat. Lionfish also aren't the biggest problem on our coral reefs. They're one problem, but they're adding to a whole multitude of stressors on our coral reefs. Waters are getting warmer because of a changing climate. The oceans are getting more acidic. Storms are becoming more frequent and severe. We're having a lot of anthropogenic damages from sedimentation and from pollution that are impacting our reefs. And then we're also, in some areas, overfishing. And all of these together is causing problems. 
a lot of these are hard to see and lionfish being kind of this villain we can point a finger at mm. but i think we should remember that they're iconic of bigger problems and if we want to protect our coral reefs then we should be thinking about all these other problems as well and doing what we can okay awesome thank you thank you both thank for you joining us this was fascinating thank you really enjoyed it we'll get out there and enjoy all the fish and for invasive species like the lionfish enjoy the fruits of removal efforts and next time i come to florida i'm going to track some lionfish so oh you should good Delicious. recommendation there they're bad but they're also so so good thanks for listening to fish of the week my name is katrina liebick and my co-host is guy Iro. our production partner for the series is citizen race car produced and story edited by tasha af lemley Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.